Thank you very much. Most beautiful. You can do that every Sunday if you want to. I know I've said that before. <laughs> Thank you so much. Quite beautiful. Tell your husband when he gets back in here, I'm really glad he's here. <laughs> I'm really glad you're both here. And uh, we've certainly been praying for you both and your, your family. Uh, I admire you and thank you for being here this morning. And uh, I rejoice for your father that he is home with the father. I long to be there myself. I may get that chance before long. Welcome to everyone who is here and everyone who is watching in our country and a very special thank you to those of you who from overseas are watching and listening. God bless you and keep you. And thank you for joining us to study the Word of God together. Um, please pray for Warren and Melanie's family, of course. Um, please pray for Suzanne, who's not feeling well today. Pray God she'll be on the mend soon. We are grateful that Deborah's back is doing better. Um, also, speaking of our folks who are watching and listening internationally, please pray for Pastor Solomon from India. I received an email this week from his daughter that he has been quite ill lately and he's been in the hospital for a few days. He's having problems with diabetes and perhaps a few other uh, health issues as well. So please pray for our brother, Pastor Solomon, who is, who is in India. And with that, let me find my spectacles here and we will lift up some brothers and sisters in Christ today and in the days and weeks ahead of course please always remember these folks who we mentioned from various countries around the world on Sunday mornings today I wish to bring to your attention brothers and sisters in Christ who are in uh, southern Mexico specifically southern Mexico the designation uh, for the status of Christians in southern Mexico, according to the Voice of the Martyrs, is hostile. Southern Mexico, where Voice of the Martyrs works, has a high concentration of indigenous minority groups that maintain a separate identity and speak indigenous languages. It is common for evangelists, pastors, and missionaries to travel several hours or days in order to reach the different minority communities. Even with persecution, the number of Christians has steadily increased, however. Most people in southern Mexico practice a syncretistic blend of ancient pagan practices and Catholicism. Both pagan-slash-Catholics and armed Marxist, atheistic, communist rebels routinely persecute Christians. Christian converts are rejected by their community and often are forced from their homes and villages. They lose jobs, inheritance, and land. Those who remain in their community are marginalized partly because they don't participate in pseudo-religious celebrations sanctioned by priests that feature drunkenness, debauchery, and pagan religious rites. Many areas in southern Mexico are only 3% evangelical Christian. There is little access to Bibles in small, isolated communities. Great need there, obviously. Bibles in indigenous languages can also be difficult to find. So pray for Bible translation as well. Voice of the Martyrs distributes high-quality Bibles in Spanish and some indigenous languages and provides help to those displaced from their communities. So please pray for our our family members who are in all of Mexico, but southern Mexico in, in particular. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, thank you for this beautiful day which points to the world to come. Upon the return of the great King, our Lord Jesus Christ, to set things right once and for all and to bring in that beautiful day and that perfect world which will know no end. 
How long, O Lord, hasten the day when the Son of God returns in power and glory and judgment. Thank you for these faithful believers who are gathered here in person to hear you speak to them out of your word and to worship you in word and in song and to pray together and to beseech our Father in heaven. We declare you to be the one and only true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who always was, is, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We thank you for the church universal, for all the brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ whom we would love to meet who are watching us from around the world. Bless them, keep them, fill them with the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to conquer in Jesus' name and their little neck of the woods, as we say, wherever they may reside. We are very grateful for them joining us. We are grateful for everyone meeting here in present. We are grateful for church members who are ill and perhaps cannot make it in, others who are traveling or who are out of state. Please be with everyone who is watching and listening, those who are friends far and near. Help them in their trials, their tribulations, sicknesses and illnesses. Raise them up. Draw them close to you. Fill them with your spirit. Help them to be champion warriors of the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever their situations and circumstances may be, wherever they may be. We pray for our brothers and sisters in southern Mexico in particular. Please help them in that strange and bizarre pagan environment where spiritual warfare must be raging viciously. As viciously as it is raging in America and around the world now. We pray for our brothers and sisters in southern Mexico. Please protect them from violence and from harm. Please help us in any way that we can with our resources to put the word of God in their hands and to help them physically in any way, shape, or form that Voice of the Martyrs Ministry brings to our attention. We pray for Pastor Solomon and for his condition of diabetes. Please heal him. Please Take him back home from the hospital and give him back to his wife and children in the orphanage and help him to be on his feet and active again. Please heal him and please give your blessings and your power and your comfort and your strength to that family. And I rejoice in Shelly and her friends. Keep them strong in one another as we may be entering times where we are all very well may have to lean on one another quite heavily in these dark days. We pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to go out and help us to do our duty here as a little body of believers to keep up the good work in doing that. I pray for our nation and its extreme danger. Help this nation to survive and to keep the sacred fire of liberty and freedom alive. Not only for ourselves, but for the entire world and to fight the good fight for freedom and liberty wherever that may take us and whatever the cost may be. Hear us, O sovereign God. Help us, we pray. May everything that is said and done here bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ our Lord to whom we owe our ultimate loyalties now and forever and of his kingdom there truly shall be no end. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. We finish the chapter today. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Instructions for life amongst believers. Ephesians 4.25-32 Therefore, writes the Apostle, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. These are the words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So, once again, because of all of the very deep theology and doctrine, the truth that Paul has taught us in chapters 1 to 3 of this letter, he proceeds in the last half of the letter, uh, chapters 4 to 6, in applying this truth to our lives. Because of the truth he taught us in the first half of the letter, well, then therefore, how now are we to live? And that's what he proceeds to teach us in the remainder of the letter. So, because of all of the truth that he's taught us up to this point, therefore, the apostle says, lay aside falsehood. And he launches into a discourse of what we would call moral teachings or moral exhortations or admonitions, or basically what he's teaching us is Christian ethics. Christian ethics and and standards of behavior and conduct for living as a Christian in the church and the Christian community. Now, first of all, I have to bring to your attention that primarily he is writing to and for Christians. This is a book that is written to Christians. It is a book that is written for Christians. And so the ethical behavior and conduct that he's teaching, he's telling you, this is how you are to live as a Christian with other Christians in the church, in the Christian community. Now, should we behave by this ethical behavior with or amongst people who are not Christians? Well, yes, of course, most certainly. But, however, I must say, the man is primarily writing about life as it is to be amongst and between Christian believers. So main idea, theme, or summary, uh, by way of Dr. Clinton Arnold's wonderful commentary, he writes, Because God has created the church to be a community of believers growing together to maturity, as Paul told us earlier, the development of social virtues is of paramount importance. Therefore, Paul exhorts believers to rid themselves of certain behaviors and to take upon themselves certain behaviors. Rid themselves of vices, if you will, that are detrimental to community life and instead cultivate what was classically called the virtues in centuries past, to cultivate virtues that, as he says in the original Greek, we translate into English as build up one another. Oikodome, to build up, to edify, as some say, one another. Edify, build up the community. The most important and summarizing virtue is love, agape love, of course, that we learned so much about in studying John's letters, defined by this, defined by God the Father's love in giving His Son, and defined by God the Son's love, Christ's love, in sacrificing Himself." Quote. So verse 25, Therefore, because of everything that I've said to you up to this point, this is how you are to translate the Holy Spirit's teachings given to me into action in your life. Therefore, lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, meaning his Christian neighbor, his Christian brother and sister. For we are, for this reason, this is the reason why, we are members of one another. Once again, he's using the beautiful metaphor of all Christians unified and corporately as a body. Many members, many cells, but of one organic body. So first of all, Paul expresses and teaches the same message, let me tell you this, in the book of Colossians. He teaches this and expresses this truth elsewhere. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 to 10 is as follows. Do not lie to one another. Sound familiar? (laughs) Do not lie to one another. Since you have shed the old man with its practices, remember he's using that wonderful metaphor of the old sin nature almost as a, a filthy old dirty garment that you take off, get rid of, and you replace it with a nice, new, shiny, clean, beautiful article of calling the new man, the new woman, the new nature, the new life. Do not lie to one another since you have shed the old man with its practices and you have donned the new man 
which is in the, he writes in the present tense. This is a present tense process, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the Creator. He's saying if you are a recipient of the new birth, you should be well on your way to becoming an image bearer of God. That's the process. Now, Paul is now going to launch into, as I said before, a number of moral admonitions or exhortations, Christian ethics. This is how we're to live in light of the truth taught up to this point in the letter. And Paul's first appeal, if you notice, like the Colossian passage we read, is an appeal to speak truthfully to one another. Honesty. The truth. We are people of the truth. We are people of He who is the truth. We are people of He who is the source, the one and only source of all truth. Therefore, we are to speak truth and truth only to one another. Speak honestly to your brothers and sisters. Do not lie. No falsehood. Falsehood has no place in the life of the believer and no place amongst Christian believers and no place in the body of Christ. Honesty is absolutely essential for trust amongst Christian believers, for trust in this unified body. It is a necessary foundation for life amongst Christian believers. Should we speak the truth with people who are non-Christians? Yes, obviously. Because they are not people of the truth, and they need the truth. We must speak the truth to them, even truth that they don't like, truth that they hate, truth that they oppose, the truth of Scripture, the truth of God. But Paul, of course, here, again, is speaking primarily for Christians. Speak the truth to your Christian brothers and sisters, always. And, of course, Obviously, I don't have to elaborate on this, now do I? When we are in a situation and circumstance in our country in which we are absolutely suffocating in lies and liars, we are people of the truth. And if necessary, we stand and die for the truth. And we very well may have to before too long. Speak truth, each one with his neighbor, primarily your Christian neighbor, but yes, your unbelieving neighbor as well. We should speak the truth with everyone, but when Paul again says speak truth with his neighbor, he does mean first and foremost other Christians. Speak the truth always with everyone, I think he's saying especially Christians, your Christian brother and sister. Paul says lay aside falsehood. You get this more in the original language, Koine Greek, and you do in English. I like the imagery that he uses there. He is really taken with this image of your old life before your conversion as some ratty, old, torn up, soiled, nasty uh, change of clothing that you need to strip off out of that thing and throw it away and you have a brand new, shiny, clean, beautiful suit of clothes to put on and to live life in now. Lay aside that. Strip off. Take aside all falsehood. Be done with that as you are being done with the old sinful nature. Put on new behavior. Replace the bad with the good. If you notice, Jesus and, of course, the inspired apostles, they, they never create a vacuum. They almost never create a vacuum. When they tell you to be done with something or get rid of something, there's not an empty space left behind. They always tell you to fill that void or that empty space with something else, with something holy, something positive, something, something good. And again, uh, in particular, why lay aside falsehood? Why always speak truth? In particular, with Christian believers, well, he answers that question, for or because we are members of one another. Or let me offer you this translation, for we are members alongside. And in the original Greek, alongside as in, I mean right alongside, hugged up almost in an embrace with one another, as in we are all members of one body. 
We're all one. Therefore, honesty, truth, no lies, no falsehood, right? We should all be working for the health and welfare of the body as a whole of which we are all a part. Truth is absolutely indispensable for the health and the unity of the body as a whole. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So let's pick this apart as we do, phrase by phrase. First of all, be angry and yet do not sin. Does that sound familiar to you? If you know your Old Testament fairly well, Paul is actually offering us something of a quotation paraphrase from the Psalms. He's half quoting, paraphrasing the fourth Psalm, Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, very heavily implies, he probably is stating outright, that there are certain kinds of anger that are warranted. He is not saying that all angry is sinful. He is not saying never be angry. Isn't that interesting? The Old Testament says the same thing. He says be angry. But here's the rub, as Shakespeare's Hamlet would say. Here's the catch. Here's the difficult part. Be angry and yet do, do not sin. Do not fall into sin by way of anger. Um, for example... Was the Lord Jesus Christ ever angry in the four Gospels? Oh, very angry. And this is God Almighty, the Son Himself, who knew no sin. Was <laughs> the Apostle Paul ever angry? Oh, my. Was he angry? In fact, if you read some of Paul's letters, he fairly sets the papyrus on fire as he's writing it or dictating it. This goes for the other apostles. Wherever some of the great heroes in church history ever angry, in particular the reformers, oh my, were they angry. There is such a thing as righteous indignation and righteous anger but exercise it with restraint and with control and we do not let it get the better of us. Paul says there are certain kinds of anger that are warranted and permissible for the people of God, but it must be contained, it must be controlled, it must be restrained, it must be exercised only when necessary, not arbitrarily or selfishly or sinfully, but truly when necessary. That is the challenge. And of course it is not always easy now is it? <laughs> it's very difficult. Very difficult. And how in the world are we to accomplish this? There's only one way that we can accomplish this, is that we throw ourselves entirely upon the Holy Spirit of the living God who dwells in us to help us. To be angry when it is necessary, to exercise righteous anger and not sinful anger, and to rely upon Him to help us to contain it and restrain it and control it. These days, I really need to rely on Him for this in particular. As theologian S.M. Bow writes, very wise man, a righteous indignation may flare up at times not only justified but necessary. But it may lead to certain types of vexation, some vexation over evils that believers may encounter, but it must be swiftly dealt with before it leads to sin, end quote. And Paul, that's really a wonderful phrase, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He states it really quite beautifully and, and poetically. The word that he uses for anger and wrath, there, there are numerous words that he could have used. Let me give you particularly what he uses. Parorgismos in the original Greek, is the word that he uses. We translate it traditionally as anger or wrath, parorgismos. You can also translate that as uh, indignation, vexation. It's a word that does mean very strong provocation or cause of or for anger. Don't let this, the, don't let this run away with you. That's what he's saying. 
Uh, anger can be proper, even essential or necessary when combating evil. However, Paul says, be careful. It can turn volatile. It can turn dangerous. And a theologian, a British theologian, John Stott, you probably know who he is. He is now in the Father's house. John Stott made a very interesting remark about this verse. He writes, quote, There is a very great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger in face of the blatant evil that we encounter. In the face of blatant evil, we as God's people should be indignant and not tolerant. We should be angry, not complacent or apathetic. If God hates sin, His people should hate it too. If evil rouses His anger and His indignation, it should ours also. End quote. And yet exercise that righteous indignation with care, as Paul teaches. Do not let go of the reins. Do not let it fester and grow. Do not let it run away with you. And that's going to be a challenge to us. It always is. I think it's going to be a challenge to us now because, frankly, if there was ever a time where righteous indignation was called for, that time is now. That time is now. Verse 27, And do not give the devil an opportunity. Ah, there's the catch. There's the warning. There's the rub. Here is why we exercise caution over anger. We do not want to give the evil one an advantage over us. We do not want to give the evil one an opportunity by, by way of uncontrolled anger or um, festering anger, if I can use that word, or anger that's really malicious. That's the type of anger that Paul is, is talking about. Be careful of that. Uh, the evil one will seek it to uh, exploit it. Exploit it, pardon me. Exploit it if it's not restrained. Um, let me give you something interesting when I was doing my studies on this passage. Um, this was more in first century what we would call orthodox Jewish religious thought, not necessarily early church Christian thought, but in first century Jewish religious thought, it was believed amongst uh, rabbis that unrestrained anger was something of a magnet that actually attracted evil spirits. Isn't that interesting? Now, they believed that there was such a thing as righteous anger. It was necessary and called for. And it was interesting that these uh, first century Jewish theologians believed that when a person truly exercised righteous anger, it drove evil spirits away. But if they fell prey to unrighteous anger, it served as a magnet. It attracted them. Isn't that interesting? Again, exercise righteous anger carefully. When necessary, do not let it fester and grow. Theologian Peter O'Brien writes, Unchecked behavior that becomes sinful will yield a place to the enemy to further his goals of stunting the sanctifying work of God the Spirit in our life. End quote. Verse 28, Let him who steals... Now, here's ethical behavior. Now, what... <laughs> Some folks have theorized, oh no, was there, was there a theft and a pilfering problem in, amongst the, the uh, Christians in Ephesus? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think he's addressing a particular problem. But we are sinful human beings and theft and pilfering is a problem all the time, everywhere, in any time and age. Now, isn't it? I think he's just stressing honesty here. Okay. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Paul addresses this as well in other letters as well. But rather let him labor, work hard, performing with his own hands what is good. In, in other words, being productive in a good way, living a good, productive life. Not necessarily producing good things. Yes, you should produce things, but live a good, productive life producing good things. That's what he's saying. In order that he or she may have something to share with him or the one who is in need or has needs. So we have a third ethical exhortation and admonition, and Paul addresses the issue of honesty again, and this time dealing particularly with material possessions or money. Uh, if there's an issue with theft, no theft. 
No stealing, period. Full stop. End of story. Put this away. Replace this evil behavior with good and righteous behavior. In place of theft, honest labor, hard work, productive labor. And here, folks, you have what we have classically called for many centuries the Judeo-Christian work ethic. The Christian work ethic. Here in North America, it became known as the quote-unquote Protestant work ethic. This is it. Love God, work hard, be happy. That is how Christians are to live their life. In place of theft, honest labor, hard work, productive labor. Be productive. And again, the famed Christian work ethic, which is so viciously under attack these days. And the Christian work ethic from sacred scripture is one of the foundational principles upon which our nation was founded. And why? Not just for our own self-aggrandizement or taking care of ourselves. Notice what he says. Do this in order that you can help others around you who are genuinely, legitimately in need. Work hard and be productive so that you can give good things to your brothers and sisters in Jesus who are around you who don't have as much as you do, who are less fortunate than you are. We should want to help everybody in need. Yes, anybody, every, anyone in need, obviously. But again, first and foremost, Paul means helping other Christian believers who are in need, locally and abroad, the world over. And praise God, we live now at a time, and hopefully it will continue, where we have the ability to help people on the far side of the world now more than we ever had. And pray God, we will still keep that ability to help people the world over. And if you read the biography of Paul in the book of Acts and glean bits and pieces of his life's biography from his letters, he demonstrated this work ethic himself in his life, in his travels, and throughout his ministry. He practiced what he preached. In 1 Corinthians 6.10, Paul warns believers, he basically is teaching upon the same theme, he gives a very strong warning about thieves. In 1 Corinthians 6.10, he explicitly states that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is advocating a totally alternate lifestyle, alternate behavior, one of honest, productive labor, Work and work hard. I can't resist it. I saw a bumper sticker once. I usually don't like bumper stickers. You know those crazy people that are, you know, whether right or wrong, you agree with them or not, their car is just, you know, it's just a gazillion bumper stickers. But I actually saw one bumper sticker that I really, really liked. It was some years ago. It was back in Kentucky. And I said it, thinks, it made something like, make a leftist mad. Love God, work hard, and be happy. Great bumper sticker. Straight out of this passage. Love God, work hard, be happy. This should be a way of life that characterizes the Christian. And again, not only to meet our own needs, but we are supposed to be meeting the needs of others in the body of Christ who are in need, who are less fortunate than ourselves, other Christian believers. We should work to produce what we can, work to produce what we should share with other Christians. And folks, think outside of the box. I do believe, especially in the first century A.D., he is speaking about literally money or food or clothing or medicine or putting a, a roof on somebody's head or food on their table. Yes, obviously we are to do that. But what other way can we give to Christians here and abroad? Something we have that they don't. Think about that. You can really widen or broaden your horizons a bit by thinking outside of, of, of the box. We might be helping people by recording this. Support Voice of the Martyrs. Support them spiritually, physically. Put Bibles, the Word of God, into the hands of people who don't, who don't have one. There are many ways that we can put this ethical exhortation to work. Speaking of the Reformers, John Calvin once wrote, No one may live to himself alone and neglect others. All must devote themselves to supplying the necessities of others. End quote. 
Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according, this is very interesting, to the need of the moment, right? At any given time that you're with one another, that it may give grace to those who hear. So here we have the fourth ethics exhortation. Paul now returns, he's circling back, it's interesting, to the topic of speech, how believers are to talk to one another, how to talk amongst one another. Clinton Arnold, I quote him again, he writes, Aware of the power of words to hurt or help, Paul strongly encourages these Christian believers to strengthen and encourage each other by the very way that they speak. Theologian S.M. Bauer writes, The disciple of Christ must love the Lord, of course, with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and word. Paul now shows just how extensive the claims of Christ are on the lives of believers. These claims extend to the very words that we say, the very words that we speak, how we talk, end quote. Now, he uses some pretty strong language here. I don't know what your translation says, but traditionally we translate this as, let no unwholesome word. That's usually the English translation. Some translations uh, translate it as, let no foul language, or let no filthy word. So the word that he uses in the original language for unwholesome or foul or filthy, yes, it's a pretty strong word. It's sapros in the original Greek. It's a rare word, and it's a pretty strong and rather colorful word in Koine Greek. The basic meaning for sapros is uh, rotten, putrid, foul, filthy. Pretty strong word. Uh, you could also... Uh, perhaps uh, translated as rancid. This word outside of the Bible used in Greco-Roman literature is usually, was usually used to describe decay of some sort, some kind of food or meat or fruit or vegetable uh, that had gone sour, that had gone rancid. Sometimes it was even used to describe a decomposing corpse. That's what foul and profane language is to the Apostle Paul. That's what foul or profane, dirty language, etc., 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 is to the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to use that very strong word. That's what careless, sinful speech really is. It's food for thought, isn't it? He uses a very strong and very ugly word for describing that kind of speech, how it is considered by God. This should not characterize the speech of the Christian believer, Paul obviously is writing. Replace that rotten, putrid, rancid speech, that type of talk with good, healthy, helpful, productive speech or words. Words that help, words that heal, words that guide, words that fire, words that inspire. As he writes, only such a word as is good for edification. We traditionally translate oikodome, as edification. Oikodome is a word that can be used metaphorically and physically. Oikodome used literally or physically means to build a house, to build a building. Metaphorically it means to beef up, to uh, um, build up, to uh, heal, to uh, inspire someone. That's, that's what it means. Words to help and heal and guide and inspire. Build up, so to speak other Christian believers with the way that you speak, with the way that you talk. Always speak with the goal of building up other Christians with their ultimate health and welfare in view. So consider, he's asking us here to consider how potentially helpful and powerful your words really can be and how helpful and powerful that your words really should be in helping and healing and guiding and inspiring and enlightening, etc., other Christian believers. I think he's saying this, if I can sort of paraphrase it this way, or put this thought before you. Through thick or thin, good times and bad times, whatever is going on, whatever is happening, when we talk to one another as Christian believers, speak to one another with eternity in view. Speak to one another with the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ right here in the forefront of your consciousness 
as you are speaking. Speak eternal life. Speak the eternal kingdom. Speak the final judgment. Speak the returning king. Have that always in view. Or if I can put it this way, no matter what you're talking about, and you're going to have to talk about everything under the sun in the course of your life. But do so in a way that's trying to speak your brother or sister on their way home into the eternal kingdom, if, if that makes sense. According to the need of the moment, isn't that interesting? Be vigilant, be watchful, be diligent. Whatever the situation or circumstance is, be mindful of it. Be aware. Be aware of the moment. Speak to the need of the moment that it may give grace, favor, mercy, something helpful to those who hear. Be aware of the need of the moment, whatever that may be, when speaking with other believers. Be aware of the need and speak to the need for this to be accomplished. And again, honesty, obviously, that he spoke of before is expected and needed. Now, isn't it? That's what's required. If we really are going to speak to one another helpfully, believers must be honest and open with one another so we can be aware of the needs at any given time and address them so we can speak to them in a worthy and productive and helpful manner. And we are to give grace, as the apostle writes, to those who hear. Give grace to other Christian believers. Give grace by, it's amazing, even by your conversation. By the way, you speak to one another. Impart grace, kadis, favor, mercy to other believers. Or, as we might say nowadays, impart a blessing to other believers, even by the way we speak to one another. This is a form of service. It is a way to be helpful. That believers must practice as a lifestyle. Verse 30, rapidly closing these three verses. Very interesting verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So evil speech, all evil behavior or sinful behavior and conduct really, all unholy conduct grieves and offends the very Spirit of God Himself. And He focuses on the third person of the Trinity who is to live in the core of our being, giving us new life. He who inspires us and dwells us and leads us and guides us. Evil behavior or conduct grieves him. And it's an interesting word for grieves. It actually means offend. Do not offend him. Do not be offensive. The Spirit has been given to all believers to indwell them and empower them to live and pursue a holy life. We are to obey the Spirit of God. We are not to grieve him. Again, I quote Dr. Bow. He writes, and I agree with him. This is one of the more mysterious and yet more important verses in the Bible in the New Testament. It is mysterious because obviously God's thoughts and ways are not human. And yet His church can grieve, really offend His Spirit. It is important because this is a, rem this is a reminder that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is personal. The Spirit is personal. And that His Spirit who dwells in and amongst His people is not an impersonal force, not an impersonal power, but a divine person. The person of God Himself, end quote. The word He uses for grieve is lupeo. Lupeo means you do not cause distress, sadness, grief, sorrow. Particularly, it means to cause offense. Do not do this to the Spirit of God, Paul writes. Do not offend God's Spirit with sinful conduct. God, God's Spirit is God. God's presence with us now. The Spirit of God by whom you were sealed... For the day of redemption. What, what's important about that? You don't keep yourself for the day of redemption. I don't keep myself from the day of redemption. We can't. He keeps us for the day of redemption. He is the one who calls us out, and He is the one who gets us there. The third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit Himself, who indwells His redeemed people, He Himself, His very person, is the seal on you and in you to keep you and get you to the ultimate day of redemption. Never forget, Christian believer, you are sealed by the Spirit of God Himself, who is our security for the final day of redemption. What is the final day of redemption? When Christ returns and changes everything in this universe forever and consummates His kingdom in this world and this universe forever. When the eternal kingdom begins beyond the final judgment. When He completes His plan for the universe, 
and for his kingdom. Do not offend him. Do not offend the Spirit of God who keeps you for that day. Obey him and work with him for the goal of that final day. And the word redemption is apolotrosis, which means, I find this very interesting, to be delivered, to be set free once and for all. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So now, in conclusion, Paul concludes this particular um, ethical series of exhortations with command and appeal that all Christian believers, that they would not offend the Holy Spirit, they must, if they're not going to offend the Holy Spirit, put away, put off malicious, bitter behavior, malicious, bitter thoughts or emotions that leads to sinful behavior or abusive speech amongst believers. The words that he uses in the original language is really very strong. He's really saying, you are not to behave in a vicious, malicious, or abusive way towards other believers. Put all of that off of you forever. That is not to be life in the Christian community. He concedes, he allows a righteous anger but one that is held under control, but again warns of unrighteous anger, particularly amongst believers. Malice, bitterness, slander. Um, you might be interested to know that the word we usually translate as slander, it's blasphemia. Sound familiar? By which we come by the English word blasphemy, which really means abusive speech, abusive or slanderous speech. Get rid of all resentful or vengeful behaviors that would be destructive amongst the body of Christ that has no place amongst genuine believers. Put these things away from you, Paul says. And again, he uses pretty strong language. Hartato. Take, take off of you. Put away these things from you. Now he's using strong language to the point of that filthy old rotten dirty piece of clothes. I want you to strip out of it, wad it up, and throw it away from you just as hard as you can fling it. Put off of you as in take it off and throw it away. Far away, as far as you can fling it. Put it away from you. Believers must give careful effort and attention to ridding themselves of such ugly, vicious attitudes and behaviors with other Christian believers. Remember, we're a body. A body that's warring against itself. Well, it's not going to survive, is it? That would be very destructive to life amongst members of the body of Christ, the Christian community. Instead, put on the new clothes. Put on the new way of life. Put on the new man. Put on the new woman. And in conclusion, be kind to one another. Christian believer, be kind to your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Be tender-hearted towards your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Be forgiving to brothers and sisters in Jesus just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So now we read of the conduct, behavior, and qualities of the new self. The new self is kindness. The new self is tenderheartedness. The new self is forgiveness. This behavior is what pleases the Spirit of God rather than offends the Spirit of God. This is how believers in Christ are to be characterized in living life with one another. Paul encourages kindness, obviously not bitterness or malice. Kindness from a heart that is tender towards fellow believers. Remember, he told us that the pagans have a dead, calcified heart. They have a rock. We are to be tender-hearted, or as the Old Testament would say, a heart of flesh. Tender-hearted towards fellow believers. And obviously, forgiveness extended towards fellow believers. Why? For the very fundamental foundational fact that God Almighty, the Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son, was kind enough to forgive us when we did not deserve forgiveness. Christians should always look to the Lord Himself for the model and the standard of behavior. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ and remember what God did for us. Model and emulate the way God bestowed His kind forgiveness on us. Paul is giving us, do you see what he's giving you here? He's giving you basic, essential, foundational instructions for life together as genuine Christian believers. To be kind, to be forgiving, to be tender-hearted is what? 
You're acting like God. You're emulating God. When you're kind, when you're forgiving, when you're tender-hearted, you're emulating God. You're on your way to being an image-bearer of God. And when you are angry at evil and yet do not sin, you're emulating God. The God who is divine wrath and absolute holy justice. Emulate God. Be an image-bearer of God. That's the reason why we were created and redeemed in the first place. So he gives us in closing the amazing grace of God. The amazing grace of God that we didn't deserve. The amazing fact of God forgiving us in and by way of Christ. This, folks, gives you the strongest possible motivation ever for obeying and fulfilling all of Paul's ethical teachings in this passage. We behave this way because God in Christ forgave us. We forgive others because God first forgave us. This is life amongst the body of Christ. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for these sacred instructions given by You to our blessed brother Paul and preserved for over 2,000 years for life amongst Your redeemed people who are watching and waiting for the return of the great King, our Savior, Christ, God the Son. Help us to apply these principles to our lives by the power and truth of Your Word and by the indwelling power of God the Spirit. In difficult times, help us to obey Your Spirit, not to offend the Spirit of God. Give us Your Spirit in great abundance, Lord, to navigate ourselves wisely and well through this life on our way to our eternal home. May everything, may everything be to honor You, Father, Son, and Spirit, one and true and only living God. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. To dismiss, let's stand and sing according to your...